Advent is a season of waiting. Not only waiting for Christmas to come, but also waiting for the trouble, turmoil, sadness, and sorrow of all of our lives, of all creation, to be made right. Or we might say in the words of the singer-songwriter and apparently sometimes theologian John Mayer, we're waiting on the world to change. This year has felt like a year of waiting for us. And even as we hear whispers of things like vaccines that may soon fulfill one of our longings, we know that for so much else that we wait for, there is no vaccine, no one or two injection inoculation, no magic pill, no five-year plan for resolution. Just the hopes that we carry with us, only the good dreams that we dream, and the restless longing that God's Spirit seems to urge on in us while we wait, as we sit, as we trust and believe. The good news is that this isn't new, and that we're not alone. Waiting has been the story of God's faithful people for a long time. Patience, long-suffering, this is the very ingredient that caused God's church to flourish against the backdrop of their persecution and many sufferings. And it remains the yeast that causes the church to grow around the world. Believing in something that still seems far off, even completely impossible, this has stayed the ways of God's people for as long as there has been a story about God's people. It's for these reasons that we're taking time in Advent to remind ourselves of some of the stories of the people who have waited before us, from whom we now have received the baton of patience, and in, who, and in whose lives of faith we can learn many lessons for what it means to live as a people who sit eagerly and desperately in anticipation of God's ongoing work in our lives in this city of Toronto, and for this whole world. Last week, you might remember, Susanna Muntz was here, and she began our time of retelling this story by remembering the lives of Abraham and Sarah, the father and mother of faith from whom many fathers and mothers of faith would come, who were given the hope of a promise that they did not see while they lived but they saw and welcomed from a distance, never settling for good enough or okay for now, but always yearning for a bigger hope, the better dream, the promised kingdom, a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. In their stories, we remember what it means to experience and to live in hope. This week, we still remember those lessons of hope, and we add to them our yearning for peace. We look now toward the prophets of the Bible to learn what we can about how to wait for peace when we are surrounded by bad news, surrounded by conflict and violence and unrest. How do we live as people of peace? How do we call out for something that seems so very impossible? The words that we heard today from the book of the prophet Isaiah were written in the wake of conquest and violence 
after the many losses of land, culture, context, and home that so often come with those things. This passage was likely written during the time when the Israelite people were in captivity in Babylon. And the words which we read contain within them a longing for a home that no longer is, because it's separated not only by distance, but also by time. It's kind of like how we can never go back to our childhood home, even if it physically exists, because the circumstances that made it, whatever it was, just don't exist anymore. These words of Isaiah also contain within them a longing for the kind of peace that would never allow this kind of separation to happen again. It speaks to a people marked by hopelessness and despair. The stump of Jesse, the royal household, once a mighty tree, now a sad reminder of what, what once was. But look, a shoot comes out, a branch grows from his roots. There is a reason to have hope, the prophets assure us. This new king, the hope that we see springing up, the light we see shining in, he is said to be a good judge. With justice he will judge the poor, with equity he will decide for the meek. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And as we hear that, it might give us pause. We might wonder, is this the peace that we hope for? A peace which is built on yet more violence? As we read this, the judgment of the just judge, we see in this poetry the language of violence. But it's actually different. Because the rod with which he strikes, it's only the king's mouth. This might remind you of the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth in Revelation. The sword which is the word of God. His will is enacted only by his word. The God who creates by speaking also uncreates and recreates with a word. With less than a word. With a breath. And that Hebrew word breath, it might also be translated as spirit. He does this by his spirit. The thing that will bring peace is not, it seems, more violence. But it is ultimately and only the will of God himself. We live in a world where this seems particularly unbelievable. Many people would say that religion is the reason for war far more than it ever is the cause of peace. And we do see how religious extremism and sectarianism has caused deep pain in the world. We must admit the ways that we each individually and collectively as the church have participated all too willingly in the machinery of war, in the perpetuation of violence in the ways that the world has always worked. But violence is not actually relegated only to the religious. So too, we have seen atheist states commit gross atrocities against their own citizens and maintain a posture of war and aggression against the world. Perhaps it is not actually God who is pre preventing the hope of peace but rather it might be us, we as people, who are prone toward violence, 
unsettled by peace. And religious or irreligious alike, we use violence toward our selfish ends. Long after these words of Isaiah were written, when this vision of peace was first given, where the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, some of the disciples of Jesus actually carried a sword at their side. Had they completely forgotten this promise and hope of peace? Or were they human as they were, once again convinced that the way of peace was through violence and not in the words of a God who speaks peace into the world? Isaiah communicates with a people who remember what once was, remember a life they can no longer have, a heritage that seems far removed from them, a hope for a better future that now seems like it can never be. And he offers to them the promise of a judge who will make all things right, who can restore what has been lost, that not only would captivity like Babylon not happen again, but the wounds which only severe trauma can cause and the fears that take deep roots in our hearts when hope loses its way and the tumult and anxiety that overpowers any sense of peace, that all of this, in fact, would be no more, that God would change the world itself so that what is restored is greater than anything that ever was before, that those who leave and kill and destroy would be undone, and that even the most severe enemies would be reconciled. This peace that Isaiah is talking about is a reconciliation that transforms our very nature. Predator and prey are about the most natural enemies you could possibly imagine, and they are at peace. There is no more threat of violence to the lamb or to the calf because the wolf and the lion have learned a new way. Jerome, who produced the Latin translation of the Bible, he notes that this transformation is not, of course, that the ox may learn ferocity from the lion, but that the lion may learn docility from the ox. Too often we think that the way to peace is otherwise, that the weak must become strong that we must learn to protect ourselves and with violence stop violence. But the way by which the prophets of God anticipate the coming of peace is quite the opposite, that the strong would now learn from the weak, that there would be no more need for defense or protection because the threat itself is no more. This is, of course, also the very way of Jesus who came to us as a defenseless child, not a war king on a chariot, and died for us as an innocent man who did not resist, not a rebel put down in his rebellion. This reconciliation that brings peace by transformation is also bigger than just the individuals themselves. It's not a single wolf that has learned docility and can now live with the lamb even as we each may have stories about the ways that the wolves within us have been tamed, that we have become more like Jesus. Rather, this is a peace that lasts. Notice that Isaiah says, even their young shall lie down together. 
the peace that God's word will create lasts generations in a new way, which undoes the way that war and strife so often last through generations. This is truly a change that only God can bring about and which we have seen the fulfillment of, the beginning of the fulfillment of, uniquely in Jesus. St. Ambrose, who was the Bishop of Milan in the fourth century, speaks of the promise of Isaiah that the young child would put its hand into the viper's nest. And he writes, Hear how the antidote was administered to the flesh. The word of God became flesh, put his hand into the serpent's den, removed the venom, and took away sin. To put it in sort of terms we're familiar with these days, the vaccine that's offering us peace has already come to us. And the promised fulfillment of his work of peace, it remains our hope. It's important for us to remember that peace is first and foremost a work which God does. And in Isaiah, we see clearly how this peace is rooted in Jesus. In fact, it is the knowledge of the Lord, which Isaiah says will bring a final end to all killing and destroying. That contrary to popular belief, it is not the end of religion which offers peace. Rather, it will be the culmination of God's work that creates peace. But this is not to say that we have no part in the coming of peace. Rather, we locate ourselves as the church as part of that ministry of Jesus to the world. In him, we know already the antidote to war and strife. So we live now as a people of peace, people of a peace that has yet to be fully realized. So let's get practical. What does it look like then for us to rehearse the coming of God's peace in the world? Well, first, I think we need to keep in mind that peace is not cheap and it's not trite. There's this great passage from another prophet, Jeremiah, who records God's words saying, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. We are not participating in the coming of God's peace by just saying the word by not acknowledging the depth and the seriousness of the pains and the problems of our world around us. Because serious wounds, they need serious care. And a bandage offers little comfort when surgery is necessary. We must not be a people who say peace lightly or carelessly, who do not see the sorrow of the world around us, who turn a blind eye even to our own pain, and believe that by our ignorance, we have now created the conditions for peace. No, peace often requires some acknowledgement and understanding of the extent of the pain before healing can even begin. So it's not cheap. It's not trite. It's hard work. And also, there is some degree of risk in pursuing peace. Because what if the wolf hasn't completely learned this new way yet? What if God also can't change the leopard's spots? What will then become of the lamb or of those of us who lean into peace 
without the certainty of a clear resolution for our work. Even still, the words of the prophet Isaiah should console us, because these were people who knew scarcity and exile and captivity. They experienced the bite of the wolf for themselves and were assured of the coming of peace, where even the wolf will lay down and even the lion will eat straw. What I hope that you're beginning to see is that peace is costly in a way that can even mean giving up the things we would choose for ourselves. Peace is not only something which we ought to yearn for when we are weak, but it must also be the thing that we choose when we have power to use violence or coercion or to ignore the needs of our neighbor in order to get what we want. You you might remember just a few weeks ago in our James series how James wrote that you desire but you do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And it's that same kind of truth which we heard again in the passage from Romans today. If we think that the peace of God's kingdom is all eating and drinking and making ourselves merry, well, we've got another thing coming because we're so far off. The kingdom of God is justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul urges us to make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. When we don't get what we want, we become like wolves and lions. We become willing to do what it takes to receive the things that we desire. But what if what we desire is actually the kingdom? Then that's not about soothing ourselves. Rather, it's about finding the peace that God intended for us to enjoy, even by giving up what we might want in favor of the better thing that finds mutuality and peace with others around us. In a way, the simplest work of peace which we might participate in is whenever we feel anger or violence, distrust or unrest welling up within us, to ask the question, is this the kingdom? Because eating and drinking, the dispute that Paul was speaking into in Romans, that's not what the kingdom is. So many things that we wage war over that has fractured our relationships that we allow to keep us up at night. So many of these things are not the kingdom of God, which is as simple and as lofty as justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what are we willing to risk? What might we even give up for the sake of the peace which is our longing and our hope? While we wait for Jesus, the just judge and the good king, the very prince of peace, to fully bring his kingdom into the world, are we willing to walk in his way, to learn meekness instead of might, to relinquish what we might want and desire for the better thing that builds relationship and community, to show the hope that we have for a lasting peace, by living into small but powerful actions of reconciliation in our lives today. May our God, who speaks peace, 
speak to each of us and all of us together of the new way of his kingdom, which is ours to know and to inhabit and to yearn for the fullness of. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to invite you to hear those words of God which speak peace and transformation into the world. And so there are a couple of reflection questions for you to consider, to pray about, to journal about, to speak with, um, with those who are gathered with you. And so they should be on your screen. The first question is, where have you believed the lie that it is only through quarreling or violence that peace might be found? And the second question is, what are you willing to risk, to hold loosely, or even to give up as a sign of your commitment to a kingdom of peace? We'll give you a couple of minutes to reflect on those questions.